Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Listen to this ACAST show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 106, Calais and Neville's Cross. So, last week we heard about the Cressy campaign of 1346. Now when I originally wrote that episode, I'd done a bit of backgroundy stuff about medieval war strategies. As always, I got carried away with Cressy and Dover Ran, so I cut it out and I'm going to do that now. This is just in case you say, I wish you'd had all this stuff earlier. If you do, yes, you're right, sorry. So we'll do that stuff and then get back to the aftermath of Cressy and then talk about the knife in the back, otherwise known as Neville's Cross. The first point to make is that taking castles in the 14th century was still really, really hard. We've talked many moons ago about some of the kind of technology attackers had for walls, mainly catapults and trebuchets. Now these were fine at causing mayhem within the town, but the trajectory they gave was not great for bashing down the walls themselves. Cannon and gunpowder will eventually turn the tables on this and signal the end of the medieval castle, but we're not there quite yet. In fact, escalade or negotiation was without doubt the most effective way of taking a castle. Escalade meaning assault by ladders slung over the wall. So capturing territory wasn't always the aim of the medieval attacker. I mean, sometimes it was. So our poor Seneschal Stafford, for example, told off by Lancaster for plodding away castle by castle, was having a go at this approach. But actually, the amount of success it brought was almost inevitably self-limiting. These castles needed then to be garrisoned to be retained, and you ended up running out of men or money to pay them. And anyway, it took forever. By the time you'd finished taking castle by castle, you'd all be dead of old age anyway, so why bother? So here are a couple of alternative strategies. Firstly, you ravage your opponent's lands so completely that the inhabitants realise their overlord can't protect them, and so they switch sides en masse. 
This is endemic in the southwest of France. Allegiances to the English go up and down like a fiddler's elbow. Or secondly, ravage your opponent's lands so completely that they are forced to come out of their walled cities and fight, at which point you give them a good old kicking. There is, incidentally, a third factor, which is the problem of supplying your soldiers. You might take a dim view of the British railway system, but transport in the Middle Ages was genuinely challenging, and pay was constantly behind. The answer? Ravage your opponent's lands so completely that you can live off their land. Now those of you paying attention out there will be noticing a theme emerging. So what we get is the chevalsay, terrifying and destructive raids deep into enemy territory. And this is the fact of life that Lancaster pointed out to Stafford. So you spread your army out over a wide, five to seven mile front and you burn and you destroy every living thing in your path. Forget whatever you've heard about chivalry and the good and gentle knight protecting the weak. In truth, the good chivalric knight put the weak to the sword. Armies in the 100 Years' War were accompanied by a swathe of destruction. Later on in the war, the French would develop a response to this strategy, but initially, at least, it was very effective for the English. So, that was the backgroundy stuff. Last week, we left the French and Philip fleeing the battleground at Cressy. It was by now quite dark, and Edward gave strict orders that there was to be no pursuit. But with the immediate dangers gone, Edward was finally able to take off his helmet and celebrate with his son. Dear son, God grant that you may long go on in this way. You are indeed my son, for you have done your duty most loyally this day. You have proved yourself worthy to rule a land. In the Middle Ages, pillaging and murdering your way across northern France was clearly considered an appropriate father-son bonding opportunity. There was, however, no celebration that night. There was too much uncertainty about exactly what the disposition of the enemy was. And in fact, at dawn the following day, 2,000 French infantry turned up under the Duke of Lorraine. The English cavalry ran them down and put them to flight. So it transpired that the battle was genuinely all over. Poor Philip had left the oriflamme trampled in the mud. He was completely gutted. He turned up in the middle of the night at the Chateau of La Bois and had some difficulty persuading the Castellan that he was indeed the King of France that was at his gate. Presumably one of those, oh yeah, and I'm the Queen of Sheba, conversations. He stayed in Amiens for a few weeks to vindictively hang a few Genoese, met his son, the Duke of Normandy, who had finally tipped up from Aiguillon, and essentially went into retreat for a month. And so the following night, the English and Welsh were able to give themselves up to celebration on the battlefield in fine tradition. They were finally able to count the extent of their victory. The losses of the French were catastrophic. It's a measure of the man that Edward, often seen as a frivolous seeker after glory rather than real substance, had steadfastly kept his eye on the main event and ordered that there should be no ransoms, pillaging of the dead or quarter given, which orders he only revoked near the end of the battle when it was all over as a competitive contest. The heralds searching the battlefield found that close to 2,000 knights had died and countless infantrymen. They didn't bother to count infantrymen. The counts of Alençon, of Blois, of Harcourt were all dead as were the Duke of Lorraine and Louis the Count of Flanders. 
and so the post-match analysis started. How had the French lost? It's a post-match analysis that has carried on ever since. At the time, the blame went to the treacherous Genoese and the disorganised nature of the French cavalry attacks. But the reality is that the French nobility attacked again and again with magnificent control and courage despite the carnage. Note the reasons for the defeat were that the French were tactically outplayed. They played their opponent's game, attacking well-prepared positions. Philip had known full well this was a risky strategy, exactly why he refused to do it at Tournai. And then, of course, there is the technical superiority of the longbow, which made a decisive difference. It is easy to over-exaggerate the long-term significance of Cressy. There are slightly potty claims made there for the battle, that it transformed society by making the peasant aware of their power with the longbow, that it caused the death of feudalism, transformed European relations. And really it didn't. No one for a moment thought that now England should be thought of as the leading nation of Christendom. And militarily, in some ways, it was also a bit irrelevant. Edward simply did not have the manpower to hold on to the areas he'd supposedly conquered. And within 20 years, most of what he'd gained was lost anyway. But that's not to say that Cressy wasn't remarkable, because it was. The news broke over Christendom like a bombshell, a bit like hearing that the Northampton Saints had actually managed to beat the Leicester Tigers. And indeed, the French and the papacy would take the English a good deal more seriously. For a while, at least. It gave Edward the opportunity to attack Calais, a decision which would most certainly have an impact in prolonging the war between France and England until its loss under Mary. The wave of support in England the victory generated allowed Edward to tax his country to support the continuation of the war. And we have to give Edward the credit, don't we? He showed a superb grasp of strategy, a three-pronged campaign which confused and diffused Philip's response. The courage of the tactical decisions he made could have led to disaster at any point, and the leadership to maintain English courage in the face of overwhelming numbers, tactical mastery of the battlefield itself, showing restraint and discipline, as well as innovation and courage. So really, a star. Edward himself was also completely realistic and clear-sighted about what Cressy had and hadn't gained him. Godfrey of Harcourt had accompanied Edward because he thought he would regain his Norman lands. Edward made it clear that he wouldn't do this, and that his next objective would be the capture of an effective French port, Calais. Godfrey was gutted, and within a few years this great traitor would be kneeling before Philip, with a halter round his neck, begging to be admitted back into the French king's favour. Calais at this time was a minor town in the county of Artois, but it had obvious advantages for Edward, providing perfect access from England and a well-constructed and powerful fortress. The French had guessed that it would be a target, so when Edward's army appeared before its walls on the 4th of September, it was well prepared. Edward didn't attempt an assault. His army spread out, making trenches and causeways across the marches, and constructing temporary fortifications, including a complete temporary town called Villeneuve-la-Hardny, with mansions and market towns, stables and simple houses. Pretty soon, the place had a population larger than most English towns. Edward was under no illusion about how much work taking Calais would entail. In the southwest, the withdrawal of the Duke of Normandy's troops basically left the whole region open to whatever the Earl of Lancaster could achieve with the number of men he had left to him. 
and this turned out to be quite a lot, as it happens. The whole region of the Agenais basically came back to England, with a few isolated French outposts. Lancaster's objective, though, was to recover the province of Saintonge. So, in typical swashbuckling fashion, rather than fighting castle to castle and town to town, Lancaster decided he would sweep north into the province of Poitiers, demonstrating to the towns of Saintonge that they were cut off and they should just come over en masse to the winning side. After all, besieging castles is so terribly dreary. Lancaster trundled north happily for eight days, burning and looting as he went, and capturing the town of Chateauneuf, when he was distracted from his course by another bit of swashbuckling, this time by the arch-swashbuckler, Walter Manny. So, I think we've established that Manny was a man for whom a fight was a bit of fun, and a money-making opportunity not to be missed. So when he heard that Edward III was coming over, he was desperate to be with the main event rather than stuck outside the walls of Aiguillon in Gascony. Somehow, he managed to persuade the Duke of Normandy to give him a safe conduct to travel all the way through France, from Gascony to Normandy, so that he could be part of it. Unfortunately, on the way, Manny was detained at a castle in Poitou called Saint-Jean-Tangely, and the safe conduct appeared to cut no ice, and Manny and his companions were thrown into jail. But there was no prison that could hold Manny, and he managed to escape and continue on his way. Unfortunately, his companions didn't fare so well, and so Lancaster diverted his entire campaign to capture the place and set them free. The whole thing is rather remarkable, but there's more, as it happens, because Manny was captured again while passing through Orléans and this time was thrown in the Louvre by the order of Philip himself. The whole affair caused bad blood not only between Edward and Philip, but also between Philip and his son and heir, the Duke of Normandy, who'd given the safe conduct in the first place. And it's just another example of a completely different mindset. Here we are in what seems to be a life and death struggle, and people are prattling about with safe conducts to let people probably go and kill more French knights, Here is the Earl of Lancaster diverting an entire army to save Private Ryan, not just sending his brothers. Anyway, since he was up there, Lancaster put on another turn of speed and appeared before the city of Poitiers. It took the city completely by surprise and unprepared, and within a day the city had fallen to appalling destruction and killing of certainly over 600 people. Lancaster then set off home, and by November 1346 he was back in Bordeaux, coming by way of the Saint-Ange, as was the original intention. Lancaster's second chevalsay was only a qualified success. On the one hand, he captured vast quantities of plunder and undermined still further confidence in the French crown and its ability to stop the English. Some towns were so terrified that they rushed out to the retreating English force, eagerly pressing their surrenders into unwilling English hands. But on the other hand, Lancaster had no intention of capturing and holding territory. He did install garrisons at Saint-Jean and Lusignan, but that was it. Even in the Saint-Ange, which had been his aim, his success in taking towns was actually rather limited. The French held on to Saint itself, for example. Probably the biggest damage to the French cause came from those garrisons like Saint-Jean and Lusignan, which now became a thorn deep in French flesh and a source of continual warfare, as those garrisons raided the lands around them and caused lots of trouble. It was a further drain, all this, on the damaged prestige of the French crown, 
and it had a practical impact. Philip was desperately trying to raise another army to raise the siege of Calais, but no one responded to his summons. And secondly, these cancers within the French lands shut off tax revenue for the king, as communities used that money instead for local defence against the English. So all of this was grand news for the English. Battles and wars fought, as Edward had planned, on foreign soil. But there was one flaw in the plan, and that was the continued animosity of the Scots. Just like the First War of Independence, English presence in Scotland was all but extinguished. And while the Edwardian cat was away, Philip had desperately hoped that the Scottish mice would play so hard that Edward would be forced to give up his campaign. And indeed it looked as though this would be the case. King David of Scotland had every intention of causing the English as much pain as possible. Inconveniently, they'd arranged a local truce until September, but when it came, the Scottish assault was well worth waiting for. It was well planned and well resourced. The border between Scotland and England had changed over the last 50 years. In the counties of Cumbria and Northumbria, life had changed forever. Before Edward I, before Edward I had put his foot in it, relations between the two countries had been good, even brotherly, and therefore the borders had been as peaceful and prosperous as any other part of the kingdom. With the arrival of warfare, life in the border regions became a daily struggle for survival. So much so, they were even recognised by different laws. Raiding across the border, killing and stealing, was becoming an integral part of everyday life. The border reavers, as they became known, were integrated into the communities on both sides of the border. This is a life that goes on for over three centuries, until eventually the border becomes irrelevant again. We'll do an episode sometime about these families and the lives they lead. Anyway, as far as I can see, Edward had essentially lost interest in the whole thing. It was too hard, too grubby, there was no opportunity for big banners and tournaments and glory and so on. Deep-fried Mars bars hadn't been invented, so really he wanted a way out if he could. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Spin your passion into a business of Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. In the meantime, he needed to stop the Scottish War becoming a drag on his ambitions in France. So, it had become the tradition to devote the resources north of the River Trent to the defence of the north. 
Edward put the Archbishop of York and two major northern lords in charge as wardens of the northern marches, Henry Percy and Ralph Neville. These are two families we'll hear much more about in the future. These men knew something was up. So when news reached them that David of Scotland had crossed the border with 12,000 well-equipped men, they were ready with plans to put an opposing force together. Fortunately, David helped their cause by messing around, eating bonbons and taking irrelevant castles and giving the English more time to get ready. But nonetheless, the English was much smaller than the Scots, no more than 6,000 men. The two armies found out about each other when William Douglas's raid south of Durham ran into the English in the fog and the Scots were driven off with heavy losses. David therefore drew up his men at a place called Neville's Cross, so called because there was an old Anglo-Saxon stone cross there. But actually he didn't choose his ground well. The area was covered with walls and ditches and difficult to move across. Now this could well be because David expected the English to attack him, but they did no such thing. Both armies sat around playing dice and relaxing quietly for several hours. But eventually, English archers advanced to bow range and started pouring arrows into the Scottish line. The Scots had no answer to this. Either they did something, or they stayed there and died. And so, goaded by the screams of wounded and dying Scots, David ordered the 1st Battalion to attack. And they did so. But the walls and ditches now broke up their formation, and they were slaughtered, mainly by arrows but also by the English men-at-arms, for the very few that made it to the English line. The leaders of the second Scottish battle didn't like the way things were going, so they politely made their excuses and legged it, leaving David and the third battle to face the English alone. And there they were overwhelmed. David himself was captured fighting fiercely and refusing to surrender. He managed to knock his captor's teeth out and was led away with an arrow still firmly embedded in his head. Neville's Cross was a disaster for the Scots and a triumph for Edward, which solved the problem of Scotland for many years. Most of Scotland's experienced leaders were captured, including William Douglas. And Edward didn't let them get ransomed, to make sure they stayed locked up and to ensure continued good behaviour from the rest of the Scots. King David was paraded through the streets of London on a black charger and then shut up in the tower. The siege of Calais took nine months to complete, and every one of those months a hammer blow to Philip's reputation. Calais was well prepared and stocked with food, and for a while Edward found it impossible to stop food arriving. But once he'd built a tower at the harbour entrance, the supply of food was completely stopped, and the last food to get through was probably in March 1347. Calais was surrounded by English earthworks and temporary fortifications. The siege was tighter than a gnat's bottom, and nothing got in or out. The French government was in turmoil. Philip thrashed around in the same way Edward had in 1340. Things weren't good between him and his heir, and the effort to raise a new army just wasn't going at all well, with many areas simply refusing to respond. In Flanders, the new count, the young Louis de Marle, went through a similar process to his predecessor. The oligarchies in Ghent, Bruges and Ypres put enormous pressure on him to turn towards England, and eventually Louis agreed to marry Edward's daughter Isabella. While all the preparations went ahead, Louis pretended to go out hunting, and instead slipped his watches and fled to France at Easter 1347. 
while we're on the subject of Isabella, if you were aware that we were on the subject of Isabella, she, as it happens, falls into the willful princess category. Clearly, she was a particular favourite of Edward. Nonetheless, she was being used here in the marriage game just like any other daughter. So, after the Louis de Mal fiasco, she was offered to Charles of Bohemia, and then to Bernard Albrey, the powerful Gascon lord. The suspicion is that this last one was her own personal choice, and down she went to Gascony, and then, on the water's edge, foot poised over the jetty, she got cold feet and came all the way back, which can't have helped diplomatic relationships. Basically, it looks as though Isabella was just having too much fun at the English court, where she's constantly involved in all the fun, though not in the politics as it happens. Eventually, in 1365, she was to marry for love, a powerful French lord called Angorard de Coucy. It's a marriage that gave Coucy enormous loyalty problems. Am I French or am I English? And at times, he simply had to go somewhere else to stop the problems. Isabella finally died in 1379. Anyway, I was actually talking about Flanders. The point is that the English alliance with Flanders kept going, and this kept the northern border free for supplies for the besieging force. War continued to go remarkably badly for Philip elsewhere as well. In Brittany, in May 1347, Charles of Blois laid siege to Thomas Dagworth's only town in the north of Brittany, La Roche d'Arienne. But the point for Charles was actually to lure Thomas Dagworth into battle so that he could rub the guy out completely because in comparative terms, Charles's army was a massive 5,000 men while Dagworth had no more than 700. But hey, this was a time when English armies could literally do no wrong. Confidence was high and there was nothing they couldn't achieve. And so Dagworth took up the challenge. What Dagworth had noted was that, although, yes, his army was a pimple on the backside that was Charles of Blois, the French were split up into four groups by the siege layout, each section separated by martial woodland. So, the plan was to surprise them piecemeal in a night attack. So, what they did was to send a load of carts and camp followers round to the western sector to make as much noise in the darkness as they can. While they attacked Charles himself who had the largest group in the eastern sector. No doubt they were feeling jolly clever as they set off at midnight. But Charles had bought absolutely none of this nonsense, and when they arrived, there he was, waiting in full armour. This was not the ideal start. Dagworth himself was surrounded and captured at one point, and the English were being pushed back everywhere. But as it became light, the garrison could see what was going on, and out they came, including the townspeople, with homemade weapons and attacked Charles in the rear end. Charles himself was cornered in a windmill and finally gave himself up to a Breton knight. Meanwhile, in the other three sectors, his army was waiting patiently. They had absolutely strict instructions from Blois not to move whatever happened, whatever distraction, whatever feint. And so each was duly defeated in turn. Dagworth sold Charles to Edward and Charles of Blois was soon himself joining King David in the Tower of London and his cause lay in ruins. Defeat in Brittany poured more woe on Philip's head and the need to send more men to help shore up the position there. And so continual attempts to raise an army to relieve Calais continued to fail. 
Eventually, things came to a head, and we get to the unequalled theatre of the Siege of Calais, lovingly and elegantly recorded by Jean de Foissart, but against a background of real tragedy for some. So, Calais' commander was a man called Jean de Vienne. Calais had run out of food and could resist no longer. Jean de Vienne wrote to Philip. Here's a brief extract. Right, dear and dread lord, know that there is nothing herein which has not been eaten, both dogs and cats and horses, so that we cannot find any more food within the town unless we eat human flesh. So we have resolved that if we do not receive help soon, we shall all march out of the town into the open field to fight for life or death. Edward intercepted this letter. He opened it, read it, quite probably rubbed his hands in glee, had a little gloat, then resealed it with his own seal and sent it on to Philip. The friends tried one more time to get a convoy of food through, but it failed again, and when he saw that, Jean de Vienne took a brutal, if not uncommon, decision. Five hundred townspeople, judged to be useless to defence, women, children, the old and infirm, were rounded up and pushed out of the gates. The laws of war gave no obligation to the besiegers to deal with such things. After all, often besieging armies found it as hard to feed themselves as did the town. So why should they make it easier for the town? So when the poor people tried to pass through the English lines, the innocent people were pushed back and driven back to the walls. And so there, 500 people starved to death in sight of their own home. In July of 1347, Philip finally appeared with an army of about 20,000 men on the hills above Saint-Gat. In Calais, everyone celebrated and hung out the bunting, lit bonfires, sounded trumpets. Surely now they would be saved. But Philip saw otherwise. Edward now had an army of 32,000 men all dug into strong positions. Supplies were flowing from the coast. In desperation, Philip tried the old personal challenge, let's meet on equal grounds trick, which, surprise, surprise, didn't happen. The cardinals appeared, trying to construct some sort of peace agreement, which Edward treated with equal disdain. And meanwhile, the people of Calais watched in despair, as the French army appeared to sit there like a ton of lard. Eventually, on the 1st of August, 1347, they took torches to the summit of a tower and signalled to Philip that they intended to surrender. By the following morning, in reply, the French army broke camp and left. For Jean de Vienne, there was nothing left to do but surrender and get the very best terms he could. And so he contacted a man that he trusted, Walter Manny, who had finally been released from the Louvre and arrived at Calais. He asked Manny to get the best terms he possibly could from the king. Edward, meanwhile, was something of a bear with a sore head. He'd been sitting here for nine months. His men needed a reward and he wanted satisfaction. So under the walls, Manny gave Vienne the bad news. No deal. If he surrendered, it would be unconditional and Edward would have the right to slaughter every one of the whole town. You have defied him too long, said Manny. Too much money has been spent, too many lives lost. Vienne replied that his men were, but knights and squires who have served their sovereign as loyally as they could, and as you yourself would have done in their place. The truth is that Manny was as horrified as Vienne, and he argued with Edward. 
What Edward was proposing went against all the laws of war that protected the lives of countless English garrisons as well as French. By Our Lady, he said, I say that we shall not go so willingly on your service if you put them to death. But then they will put us to death, though we shall be doing no more than our duty. Eventually Edward gave way and he said, My lords, I do not want to be alone against you all. Walter, go back to Calais and tell its commander that this is the limit of my clemency. Six of the principal citizens are to come out with their heads and their feet bare, halters round their neck, and the keys of the town and castle in their hands. With these six I will do as I please, and the rest I will spare. So inside Calais, Vienne called a big meeting. One by one, six of the leading men volunteered and were led out of the town by Vienne who, as an aside, was apparently riding a pony because he was so ill. Well, that is one lucky pony, that's all I'm going to say. Apparently all his mates had been eaten weeks ago. Anyway, there was Edward sitting with his lords and his ladies and his pregnant-for-the-twelfth-time wife, Philippa. Vienne went up to Manny and again begged for the life of the six men, but Edward said and did nothing but stare at the six men. Then he bestirred himself, and he ordered them all to be beheaded. There was a stir, and a murmur of shock and horror. On behalf of the whole court, Manny again spoke up for the good burghers. But Edward was done with all of that. Back to Foissart. At this, the king ground his teeth, and said, That is enough, Sir Walter, my mind is made up. Let the executioners be sent for. The people of Calais have killed so many of my men that it is right that these should die in their turn. Then the noble Queen of England, pregnant as she was, humbly threw herself on her knees before the king and said, weeping, Ah, my dear lord, since I crossed the sea a great danger to myself, you know that I have never asked a single favour from you. But now I ask in all humility in the name of the Son of the Blessed Mary, and by the love that you bear me, to have mercy on these six men. I'm sure you'll agree that this is superb theatre, or it would be if it was acted properly, but one suspects all of this was simply playing to the galleries. I doubt very much that Edward gave a tinker's curse about the six burghers. But now in full majesty and power, he was able to decide the fate of Philip's own subjects. So we let them off. They were all taken round to Philippa's place, dressed up in fine clothes, and then sent off to live in exile. Because the English had the power to decide these things. And so, everyone, that brings us to the end of another whopper of an episode. So much for the plan to make episodes shorter, eh? Now, you're probably by now fed up to the back teeth with war, death and mayhem, campaigns and stratagems and all that. So you'll be delighted to hear that there is a truce on the way, along with a tiny organism called Yersinia pestis. Something to look forward to then. Good luck everyone, and have a great week.